have your Bibles, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 11. 1 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to actually be uh, looking at chapters 9, 10, and 11 uh, this morning, but I'm going to read to you here in just a moment chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. If you have your Bibles um, there, open up there for us. Um, as you're opening, let me mention just a, a couple of things to you. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for making Church Outside the Walls last Sunday such a great day. Uh, it was a wonderful day in the Lord and a wonderful day with His people. We had lots of guests there and really had a good time. Thank you again to all the volunteers who made it possible. And thank you to all of you for inviting folks and for uh, coming to Church Outside. And I uh, really appreciate y'all, y'all's willingness to do that and your joy in doing that. Second of all, you're in for a treat next Sunday. Our very own associate pastor, Woody Turner, will be preaching as Whitney and I will be out of town on a little vacation over the weekend. And so be praying for Woody as he prepares to preach next Sunday. No, we'll miss you, but Lord willing, we'll be back Sunday after that. First Samuel chapter 11. If you have your Bibles open there, why don't you go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. The author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God Himself is speaking to us, beginning in chapter 11, verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now, behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. And he took a yoke of oxen, and he cut them in pieces, and he sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. 
And then, verse 12, the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we thank you for this text of Scripture, and for these chapters and for this story, Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and our mind to receive your word and to be changed by it today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The great preacher of London, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, once was preaching on John chapter 6, verse 37. Now, you may not be familiar with that verse, maybe you are, but let me read it to you really quickly. All that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus said, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, an astute reader, and those of you who read this text carefully, might read it and think there's a little bit of a contradiction there, right? Which is it? Is it that the Father gives these people to the Son? Or is it that they come of their own free will to the Son? All that the Father gives me, on one hand, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, on the other hand, I will never cast out. Now hear what Spurgeon said in this sermon um, years and years and years ago. Here's commentary on the tension in these verses. I was once asked to reconcile these two statements, and I answered, no, I never reconcile friends. These two passages never fell out. They are perfectly agreed. It is folly to imagine a difference and then set about removing it. It is like making a man of straw and then going out to fight with it. The grand declaration of the purpose of God that he will save his own is quite consistent with the widest declaration that whosoever will come to Christ will be saved. The pity is that it ever should be thought difficult to hold both truths, or that supposing there is a difficulty, we should have thought it our duty to remove it. I say to you this morning, for ages and ages, back in the 1800s and even before, God's people have been trying to find the right balance between two biblical realities, two friends that are present throughout the Scripture. On one hand is God's sovereignty, the fact God is in control, the fact God is the one who acts according to His own good pleasure for the sake of His people, the fact that God is sovereign over all things, all events, all peoples, and all times. But then on the other hand, the other biblical reality is man's responsibility. The fact you genuinely chose to get up this morning and come to church. Or maybe some of you are watching at home and you chose not to come to church today. But that's another sermon for another day. (laughs) Seriously though, maybe, maybe put simpler, this tension that we try to reconcile, this tension we deal with, maybe on one hand we call it God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, or maybe simply put it's free will versus God's will how do we reconcile these two things well here in these three chapters of Samuel we see 
a little bit of the ways and the works of God. And again, I think some of our struggles with understanding the teaching of doctrine in the New Testament is sometimes rooted in our unfamiliarity with the ways of God in the Old Testament. Because here in this passage, we see the way that the Scripture, in telling the story of Saul becoming king, we see the way the Bible presents in this story both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility without pitting them against one another as a harmonious whole in showing the way that the kingdom of Israel was established under King Saul. You see, I want you to see from these passages this morning, to borrow from Spurgeon, the way this narrative of Scripture presents these two truths as friends. We might have an easier time seeing them as friends in the New Testament if we had seen all the ways that God shows them as friends in the Old. Let me put a point on this. How should a Christian respond to God's good and sovereign plan? I mean, if God's in control... If, if God's really in control, if God is truly sovereign, what should we do? Okay, if, if God is sovereign, what is my responsibility? How should we live in light of the bigness of God as it's presented in Scripture? This morning, I'm going to show you three truths that I think will guide you and help you as you seek to live as a servant of our sovereign God. Uh, Three truths I think we can use as individuals and as a church to help us think through and pray through how we ought to live knowing God is in control. Three truths this morning from these passages of Scripture. Here's the first point this morning. Trust God's sovereign plan. Trust God's sovereign plan. Simple enough, right? It's easier said than done. Notice as this narrative begins to unfold in chapter 9. Now, this is one portion we've not read yet. Again, let me encourage you when you get the opportunity, if you see in the chimes what passage we'll be looking at, try to read it ahead of time if you can, so you're at least a little more familiar with these stories. But I'm going to do my best to get you caught up. Back up just a little bit with me, though, if you would, to chapter 8, verse 22. Notice what the Bible says there. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. In the passage Woody read earlier from chapter 10, you hear Samuel alluding to the fact that God's people are disobeying him in their request for a king. Now, again, I don't think this is because God never planned for them to have a king. I don't think it's because all kingships are wrong, but the heart behind their desire for a king was rooted, I think, primarily in fear and worldliness, a desire to be like the world. And so as the curtain closes on each man going back to his homes, we feel the tension in the story of the fact that God's people are being allowed to disobey him. God is allowing them to have their way. So he has commanded his servant Samuel to listen to the voice of the people. And as the curtain closes on that act, of the request for a king, it opens up again in a new scene, in a new setting, that at first doesn't make a lot of sense. The scene cuts and we're left in suspense. But notice what we see here. Verse, chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin. Out of the blue, we hear about this man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. He was the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, 
son of Becherath, son of Ephiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. A, a long genealogy like this seems to indicate this is a man of some importance, that he's from a long storied line of people. He's from one of the old families of Israel, if you will. And then on top of that, he's a man of wealth. And our English word wealth can't quite convey all that the original language conveys here. He's more than just a man of wealth. He's sort of a, a big man. He, he's got money. He's got influence. This is a prominent man from a prominent family. And verse 2 tells us he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Immediately, as that curtain has cut on the, on the, look for, on the search for a king, and this curtain opens on this man, we immediately, our minds immediately go to say, now this is the kind of king we're looking for. I mean, this guy is straight out of Camelot. I mean, this is the all-American man, right? I mean, this is what we're looking for. We, we don't want a shrimpy little bad-looking king, okay? We want a guy who everybody can see from a mile away. We want a guy who looks good. We want a guy from a prominent family. We want a guy who's got some money, who's, who's capable of leadership, from this description of strangers, seeming strangers, the story continues, but we're still left in suspense. We're introduced to someone who our heart immediately thinks, now, if I'm God, this is the kind of guy I'm looking for, right? If I had my druthers, this would be my king. But something weird sort of happens here. We start to talk about donkeys. Not the most royal of thoughts. Notice what the Bible says. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. Could anything be more seemingly boring than lost donkeys? I mean, is there anything more mundane and simple than lost donkeys? I mean, this is like a neighborhood watch Facebook page right now. What's next? A bad restaurant review? The dogs are loose, and I didn't like my meal at a fast food chain, right? I want you to think about this for just a moment. I want you to see how seemingly boring and mundane these details were being introduced to. We want to go back to the description of the all-American man, but here we have this talk of lost donkeys and yet I want you to see here and I want you to see what I think the author is trying to convey to us the beauty of God's sovereignty the beauty of God's control there's a glory that's brewing even in these seemingly mundane details and let's just take a little bit of an account of these weird mundane boring details that chapter 9 introduces us to. Of course, we begin with lost donkeys. And they search for these donkeys. There's no donkeys in Ephraim. There's no donkeys in Shalisha. There's no donkeys in Shalim. There's no donkeys in the land of Benjamin. Can't find the donkeys on Nakalula Mountain. There's no donkeys in Horton Bend. There's no donkeys in Southside. We can't find the donkeys. 
We've looked everywhere. There are no donkeys. And so they find themselves finally in the land of Zuf. And by the time they get there, they've been on this journey long enough. He says, you know, at this point, my dad's not really going to care about two donkeys anymore. He's going to be, or a few donkeys, he's going to be more worried about us and whether his son's life has been lost. And so Saul decides it's time to give up on the donkeys and go on. However, one more time, not only has his path and what he's doing been changed by the donkeys, but now you recognize it's being changed by another seemingly mundane detail, a little small thing that the servant happens to know. The servant recognizes that there's a seer. Later the text explains that a seer is a a prophet. That there's a seer or a prophet in the place that may be able to point them to the donkeys. Saul, however, is ready to go home and he presents sort of an objection. Well, we don't have anything to offer the seer. We're going to disrespect him if we go. And so that morning or the day they left, I guess that servant just happened to remember to go to his bedside table and put a few coins in his pocket. You never know when this might come in handy, right? And so they take, he remembers, I've got this shekel in my pocket. And so in verse 8, so as not to show impropriety, the servant realizes and tells Saul, no, I have a shekel that I can give to the prophet. It is interesting, I suppose, that the servant is more concerned about the donkeys than Saul is. Uh, I suppose Saul is sort of used to being wealthy and doesn't mind as much about losing property as this servant does and so then they go and they meet the seer the prophet a man whom you know well already Samuel as they approach the city in verses 9 through 13 they see women who affirm the prophet's presence and they told them he was about to bless a sacrifice they happened to come through at the time when the women would be going to the well this was perfect timing because as they entered the city they saw a man they did not know However, the man knew Saul. Notice what the Bible says in verse 18. When Sa- 17, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. And then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? And Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? From there, Saul and the rest of this chapter receives special hospitality from Samuel. But do you see this? And do you see the sort of level of God's control even in the minutia? And, and many of you can go back. I was just talking to someone in the hall earlier, and they were talking to me about how there were just seemingly small and minute things that led to some of the biggest parts of their lives. Meeting a spouse or, or doing this or doing that. You can think this. We all have stories like this. If we had not been here, if we had not been there, if I had not been doing this, if this small thing hadn't happened, then maybe I would have never met this person. I never would have done this person. I wouldn't have had the experience to do this. And here we see the way that all these small, minute details from lost donkeys to a shekel in a pocket all the way to women coming to the well, all the way to Samuel being where he was at that very moment, 
Testament, all of these small details are building up and put together are part of God's what? God's sovereign plan. I hope you'll see something beautiful in this story. I hope you'll be encouraged as you read the text by this thought. God is in control. God is in control. God's sovereignty does not always make us feel good. But it ought not to trouble us. Sometimes we present God's sovereignty as Christians like it's a scary thing. But how could it be scary for a loving father who loves you deeply, who's welcomed you into his family, who has wrapped you in his loving arms, how could that make you feel bad when he's in control? It's like I like to tell my children sometimes when they've asked me three million questions about something. I said, Do you, have, I, have you ever known me to not have your best interest at heart? Well, just trust me, we're going to do something good here. Something good's going to happen. Or when my children are afraid, and I'll say, look at, look at me, come look at me in my eyes. Do I look afraid? And they say, no. And I say, okay, here's the deal. When I get scared, you can get scared. But until I get scared, you just enjoy the fact that there's nothing to be scared of. Okay? Trust your father. Now listen, there's plenty of times I'm a dummy. I should be scared and I'm not. But that's not true with your father, is it? Your father is a good father. He's an all-knowing father. He's in charge. He's in control. It ought not to trouble us. It ought not to paralyze us to think that God's in control. We are not fatalists. We do not sit back and become lazy because God is in control. No, we recognize and are comforted by the fact that we serve the God who goes before us. There's nothing that befalls us in our lives that we don't look at and recognize somehow or another. God means this for my good and for His glory. It's a good thing that God is in control. It ought to give us comfort. It ought to give us confidence in the life around us. Our God is in control. We ought not to be scared. How is it that our former intern can go to the mission field in a country that is not just not just not interested in Christianity but is antagonistic toward Christianity how can she go there and believe that she could see gospel fruit in a place like that it's because we serve a sovereign God a God who is in control a God who has a plan to redeem for himself people from every tribe tongue language and nation and so when we go to preach the gospel when we go to knock on our neighbor's door when we do anything we should go with comfort and knowing that God has gone before us and with confidence knowing that God has gone before us God is in control but second of all we also recognize God equips us to do his will so that's the first thing, to think through how we live knowing God's sovereign. We should take comfort and confidence in knowing God's in control. We, 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 we should trust God's sovereign plan. But second of all, we should always remember God equips us to do His will. God uses us. <laughs> okay? God uses us. I want you to notice here in chapter 10 the sort of tool belt of confidence that God gives to Saul as king. Again, in God's sovereignty, he equips Saul to do his will. After receiving this great hospitality from Samuel, uh, Samuel's already told Saul, be patient until in the morning. And in chapter 10, verse 1, Samuel took a flask of oil. He had sent the servant ahead so that he and Saul could have some moments together with no one there. And 
Samuel pulls out this flask of oil and he poured it on his head and he kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. So he begins by equipping Saul and God sends Samuel to anoint him, to set him apart for the task. Our sort of parallel for this in the Christian church is something like ordination, where we set people apart for the work we believe God has called them to do. So we've sort of taken this idea a little bit, and we use something similar to that in the Christian church today, where we set people apart. That's what anointing is. He's being set apart. He's being consecrated for the task. But then from chapter 1 down into verse 8, Samuel begins to, as a seer, as a prophet, give him sign after sign after sign that this is really God who's at work. There's a sign of confirmation in those eight verses. He talks about, when you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb. And he says, uh, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. So he gives all these things that will happen, and then all of these things come true. And all of this series of events sort of culminates with the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you look in verses 9 through 13, when he turned back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. And when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And then later in chapter 10, verse 25, we see that Samuel writes out instructions about what it means for him to be king. And so he has written instructions as well. And on top of that, he has a community of co-laborers, men of valor who go with him, who are committed to doing the work of God. Imagine all of this. You've been set apart to be king, and all these signs and all of these things that are showing you that God has equipped you and prepared you for the work. You've been anointed. You have signs of confirmation clearly from God. You have the very presence of the Holy Spirit. You have written instruction. You have a community of co-laborers. Imagine having all those things. Wait, you do, don't you? Have you not been set apart and anointed by God through baptism? Have you not seen sign after sign after sign of the work of God in your life? As a believer, are you not indwelled by the Holy Spirit? Do you not have the prophetic word more fully confirmed in a Bible? I bet you've got more than one. I bet you've got so many Bibles, you've got a few you haven't looked at in years. Do you not have a community of co-laborers around you, people who want to do God's will just like you do in the church and elsewhere in your life. And yet with all of these things, do you see what Saul does? Chapter 10, verse 16, you see the first sign, you see the first crack in the foundation of Saul's kingship. You see the first sign of reticence, the first sign of a sort of unholy meekness in Saul. Saul's uncle said to him, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him 
anything. And though Samuel had been anointed, it was time then to gather all the people together to talk to their king. And we see that story begin to emerge in verse 20. It was read to us earlier. Samuel brings all the tribes of Israel near and they begin to cast lots to have God demonstrate who this king is. And finally it gets down to the man and everyone looks around and you can imagine how excited Samuel had to be. Man, they're going to love it when they look around and they see this guy standing head and shoulders above everyone else. This good-looking guy. I mean, what a great king. First sign of reticence was an unwillingness to tell his uncle, but it turns into outright hiding from the people and perhaps even from the Lord. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. And then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. My friends, I want to tell you something. When God has given you what you need to serve him, when God has equipped you to do his will, it is not humble to be fearful. It is not humility to shirk back from what God has called you to do. When it comes to God's sovereignty and our responsibility, it's important for us to remember that God gives us what we need to do what He has called us to do. And when God has equipped us and when God has prepared us to carry out His will and we're over there hiding in the baggage or we're unwilling to articulate what God has called us to do when we won't do what God has asked us to do, we may call it anything, but it is fearfulness and it is pride. We ought to doubt our abilities, but we cannot doubt God's provision. What a shame it was to see Saul hiding there. I don't think this was an act of humility. This was him shirking his responsibility, being fearful of what God had called him to do. Let me ask you this. Are you hiding today from God's calling? Are you hiding today from God's will? And is your hiding humility? I doubt that it is. Or is it pride in assuming it's your ability that will win the day? Are you like Moses who's coming up with every excuse to not do what God has called you to do? Or, or are you going to run boldly toward what God has called you to do. My friends, God equips His people to fulfill His will. You are given what you need. And we can't for a moment think, not only as individuals, but even as a church, that we have one iota less to do what God's called us to do. That we are lacking in any way to fulfill what God's mission is for us. We cannot for one moment think that. That's not humility, my friends. That's shirking from God's responsibility. God equips us to do His will. God uses us to do His will. We must trust God's sovereign plan. We must remember that we're equipped by God to do His will. And finally, we must be bold in fulfilling God's call. Now, I want you to notice in these three chapters, there's a little bit of a progression to a full acceptance of Saul as king. Early in this previous chapter, there were some people, worthless fellows, the Bible says, 
verse 27, late in chapter 10. And they despised him, the Bible says, and brought him no present, but Saul held his peace. There's still work to be done in fully establishing his reign. His leadership is still in its infancy. He isn't holding regular court. He hasn't established a headquarters or anything like that. Now, we don't know if that's because not everyone agrees yet. We don't know if that's his reticence to be king. We're not really sure why. But nonetheless, this challenge comes to Israel. Nahash the Ammonite comes. And in verse 2, he says, if you want peace, it comes at a cost. If you want to cut a covenant with me, normally a covenant would be cut with animals being sacrificed. He says, if you want to cut a covenant with me, it will be done by gouging out your right eye. A Jewish historian named Josephus said this practice was twofold, not only to humiliate and disgrace Israel, as the text says, but also he said that the way shields would have been carried in this age would have covered up the left eye. So it also rendered these people incapable of being a military threat to the Ammonites. At any rate, it was a total subjugation of these people. And then we see emerge Saul's brightest moment. Saul hears the word as the people of Jabesh, Gilead, stall for time. He was coming from the field behind the oxen back to his normal work. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? They told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. And so he takes a yoke of oxen, he has them chopped up and almost like a mafia capo or something. He has them sent out all over the place and says, thus will be done to you and to your oxen, not to you, but to your oxen, if you do not come and fight behind Saul and Samuel. And so a great army comes to fight. And in Saul's greatest moment, he rushes forth in battle, the Bible says. And notice how it's described in verse 11. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. And then coupled with this bold leadership, we see in Saul's finest moment here, his magnanimity, his refusal to kill those who had said he wouldn't reign over them, his, his love and mercy that he shows to those people in verses 12 and 13. And thus, it came to be that Saul was no longer just the anointed king, and he was no longer just the declared king, but he was the crowned king by all the people of Israel, the the new king over a resurgent kingdom. You see, a resurgent kingdom with spiritually led leadership, a commitment to God's way and will, and a unifying king was built there on that day. And we'll see the way that pride and sin and other things eroded Saul's kingship and brought great calamity on the people of God. But here in this moment, we can learn an important lesson that we must be bold in fulfilling God's call. God's sovereignty is not a call. God's control is not a call for the church to jump into God's sovereignty like it's a river and tube down the river. We just kind of go with the current and go with the flood. 
No, what we are called to do is to be God's people and to come together according to God's Word and to come together by God's Spirit with a boldness in God's calling in order that we could see great things happen. We don't try to force God's hand. We don't try to go beyond the Lord. But we trust the Lord that goes goes before us and that emboldens us to fulfill God's calling in our lives and in our church. I ask you this question today, how bold will you be in God's call? How bold will First Baptist Church be in the calling of God? Brothers and sisters, we have a mission that God has called us to. And I hear it all, I've seen all the prognostications, I've heard all the future tellers. There's more than one seer in these parts, I've learned. The world's on fire. Religion's in decline. The church is shrinking. The future is dark. What are we going to do with our grandkids and our great-grandkids? What's going to happen when the Lord's church doesn't even exist anymore? The culture's changing. This, I've heard it all. But my friends, now's not the time to go looking for the baggage and finding a place to hide. Now's not the time to shrink back and to hide. Now's not the time to say, well... God's sovereign, what will be, will be. No, 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 those aren't Christian thoughts. Now is the time to say we are the church triumphant. We are sons and daughters of the living God. We are purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are armed to the hilt with the good news, the life-changing news, the glorious news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are filled by the very Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit has rushed into our hearts and lives to equip us. We are guided by our sovereign God who goes before us. We are equipped for every good work by his perfect word now is not the time to shrink back to hide now is not the time to become fatalist now is the time to say God is in control and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and this family and this church First Baptist Church of Gadsden we will march boldly forward toward the mission and calling of God now is not a bad time to be a Christian now is the best time to be a Christian You have been equipped. You have been prepared. Now you serve a God who goes before you, a God who is in control. Who are we to speak back to Him when He's equipped us to do what He's called us to do? Oh, church, let's arise and do what God has called us to do. Take the gospel to Gadsden and beyond. God is called. God is equipped. God is in control. God is calling us to His work even now. Will we answer?